Thanks for pressing play. Welcome to a radically different dialogue about free speech. Free speech is often called the first freedom and the bedrock of democracy. Our guest today says that on one hand, free speech around the world has never been better, but we are now experiencing a free speech entropy in the United States. And that guest is Jacob McCango. He's a global expert on free speech. Political satirist P.J. O'Rourke says that his new book is, quote, the best history of free speech ever written and the best defense of free speech ever made. That book is out and it's legendary. It's called Free Speech, a history from Socrates to social media. Jacob is a Danish lawyer and the founder of Justitia, a Copenhagen-based think tank focusing on human rights, freedom of speech, and the rule of law. In this remarkable conversation, Jacob discusses the anti-lynching crusader Ida Wells and the culture of free speech and how it's evolved through history and his thoughts on the near-term future of free speech and much, much more. This is Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine calls us the best business podcast. And some reviewers call us asinine and overrated. Whatever you call us, we are the number one business dialogue podcast for people who crave unfiltered, unfettered, unedited, real dialogues with the people making our world a different place. My friends at Hallow App are the world's real life network for you and your real friends from the people who brought you WhatsApp. You know, there's a massive sea change starting to brew right now in the technology and in the digital world, a shift away from legacy social media to whole new approaches. On Hallow App, there are no ads, no bots, no likes, no trolls, no followers, no algorithms, no influencers, no censorship, no photo filters, no feed fatigue, no misinformation, and no echo chambers. Hallow App, from the people who brought you WhatsApp for your real life. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So, Jacob, it sure is uh, fantastic to have this time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. I've been looking forward to uh, to, to this chat for a while. I also want to let you know, uh, I really deeply appreciate your work and your new book. It's outstanding, and it is, in my opinion, we'll get into this, <laughs> I'm sure, more needed now than, than maybe ever. So thank you for your work. Thanks so much. Now, maybe let's start uh, very broadly. What would you say is the state of free speech in the world today? So there's one way of looking at it where you say, we've never had it better, you know, you're sitting somewhere in the U.S. I don't know if, you know, California or wherever you are. Um, and I'm in, in, I'm in Denmark and the other side of the world. You know, you and I can speak. There's no censor uh, making sure that we don't say inappropriate things. Uh, and, you know, so technology, Internet has, has given us unprecedented opportunities. And, uh, you know, in the U.S., you have a First Amendment that provides the strongest protection, legal protection of free speech probably ever in the history of mankind. Free speech is a global norm of international human rights. So from that perspective, things are certainly much better than 
you know, uh, when, when some of the early champions of free speech risked their lives fighting for it, uh, in, uh, in, in, whether in, in, in America or, or Denmark or elsewhere. But on the other hand, you would also say that even though this could be a golden age, I would say that it's, it's, it's probably a golden age that is in decline. I would say that we, we're in a free speech recession. So even in democratic states, um, we see free speech, what I call sort of a, a, a process of free speech entropy. So, so that means every time there's a period in history where free speech, you think, oh, free speech is now sort of secure and we've turned the corner, a, a process of free speech entropy sets in. And in Europe, in democratic Europe where I am, that means an increasing tendency for even for democratic governments to restrict free speech through laws. So the European Union right now is, for instance, in the process of adopting a law which which, which says that social media companies have to remove illegal content within a short uh, time frame or risk huge fines. They're also in the process of saying uh, hate speech should be an EU crime defined by bureaucrats in Brussels uh, uniformly across the 27 uh, member states. Overnight, the European Union decided that Russian state broadcasters like RT and Sputnik were no longer able to to broadcast in the EU, and even you know social media companies were obliged to remove such uh, such. I, I just want to make sure I got what you just said. You were talking about Russian state media that was yeah, available so for, yeah, yeah, in the rest of yeah. Europe that is now not state, available. State sponsored, yeah. You know, of course, there are ways to 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 circumvent it, um, but but in, in in principle, you know, even Google has to. Sort of delist search searches for RT and Sputnik, and and in principle, Facebook and, and Twitter would have to block. Yeah, if I'm if I'm based here in Denmark and I search for RT, and you know they're supposed to block sort of you know, want to watch, watch a clip of of, of Russian propaganda, um, and and we can get back to discussing why I think that's a bad idea. But then I think you have the very interesting case of the U.S. because on the one hand. On your side of the pond, uh, as I said, free speech has never been enjoyed a stronger protection under the First Amendment, uh, you know, and that hasn't always been the case, even though the wording of the First Amendment has been the same since it was ratified in 1791, uh, the level of protection has changed dramatically over the years. So, so, you know, even as early as 1798, if you cracked a joke in public about John Adams' ass, and he was the president at the time, you could go to jail. <laughs> and if you were a congressman and you said something naughty uh, about Adams, uh, you, you could also go to jail. Today, you'd have to, uh, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's difficult to imagine uh, anything that you could say about a sitting uh, U.S. president that would see you thrown to jail short of very direct threats or, or incitement to, to, to violence against such a person. You know, I don't think you would have to search the internet or social media very hard to find uh, uh, things said about Joe Biden that were not uh, particularly flattering. Um, but then, on the other hand, I would argue that the culture of free speech in the U.S. is under pressure, both from the, from the right and the left. So the, the culture war, which is which is such a uh, you know a force in the in, in the U.S. means that I see tolerance for opposing ideological views uh, in decline. So on the one hand, you have sort of the liberal progressive left, which sees 
for instance, um, misinformation about elections and COVID as a big threat uh, that conservatives use. Um, and also they see um, perceived racism uh, and, and bigotry as a threat to minorities that has to be clamped down on and, and, and not necessarily through laws, but for instance, by demanding that universities fire professors or faculty members if they've said something on Twitter that crosses uh, the, the lines of orthodoxy or, you know, New York Times having to, you know, an, an uproar among its, its, its staff if, if, uh, if, if an op-ed editor publishes an incendiary uh, op-ed by a, a Republican senator during the, the, the Black Lives Matter protests. And then, Interestingly, in, in the sort of the past year or so, you see an increasing tendency by Republicans to try and use actually state power laws, these bills that target not only education in, 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 in K to 12 grade, but even sort of in, in, in higher education, trying to sort of ban divisive topics on gender and race uh, and even American history, sort of targeting so-called anti-critical race uh, theory. And, and, and that I think, and also you also actually see people on the right, you know, engaging in cancel culture on, uh, on, on things that they, that they don't uh, like. And I think, you know, ultimately, I think that the culture of free speech is probably more important, uh, than the legal, the language of, of, of a legal statute or, or constitutional protection, because ultimately the culture of free speech is what will inform where we draw the limits, how we interpret the legal protections uh, that, that that we have. So, so I I would fear that in the U.S., if if you know the tolerance and culture of free speech is continuously being eroded from both sides, you might end up in twenty years having a, a very different constitutional protection if it becomes accepted that offensive uh, or um, in uh, speech or disinformation should no longer be protected to the degree that it is today. Thank you for that. I've, I've been waiting for that answer for <laughs> pretty much uh, since your uh, PR team uh, reached out. So I appreciate that very much. So on one hand, in the United States in particular, and of course, in a lot of um, Western Europe and, and other places, we enjoy a very high level of free speech today. There's uh you, like you mentioned, you and I could say virtually anything on this podcast and, and, and no government official will step in and do or say anything about it. So that's very powerful. But I also experienced just as a person who lives in the United States uh, and as a writer and a podcaster, I experience what I believe to be a quite radical decline in free speech. And what I personally am experiencing, and I'm not the expert that you are, but I want to see if this triangulates is where we're moving or maybe even where we are. Maybe you'll tell me in the United States is I believe in free speech as long as I agree with it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, and, and unfortunately I think that is hardwired into human psychology sort of, I, I it, it was probably very useful for us as we evolved as a species uh, that, you know, sort of this tendency towards intolerance of others and, and tribalism so to, to create sort of social coherence. Um, it, you, you know, you wouldn't necessarily survive if you stood around arguing, you know, should, should we go this direction or that direction? <laughs> but in today's complex, diverse societies that are based on 
on, on fundamental uh, principles and, and, and what can seem like abstract values like, like, like openness and, and uh, discourse, political pluralism, um, this sort of default position of, of intolerance is a huge challenge to us as, as human beings. And, and so we all, you know, and, you know, we're all very good at convincing ourselves, creating these elaborate arguments for why free speech is really important. But uh, we can we can convince ourselves that on this specific topic, which we think is particularly dangerous, or or you know, free speech needs a little carve out, and we can convince ourselves that that carve out is completely justified and very different from the others who just want to who, whose whose limits on free speech are authoritarian. Ours actually further, you know, openness, uh, tolerance, uh, and and uh, and so on. So I think I think you're right in 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 saying that. And of course, one of the problems is that you know social media companies, on the one hand, have furthered what I call egalitarian free speech. So even though you know the First Amendment provided great protection for in principle for everyone before the the age of the internet, there really was this caste of the specially anointed institutional gatekeepers who had a privileged access to the public sphere, not only for themselves to speak in the public sphere, but also to decide who was worthy of being heard in the, the, the public sphere. So you and I would not necessarily be able to speak to anyone except for, you know, our buddies at the bar if they cared to listen to us after, after beer number five. Uh, so we could say whatever we want, but we would, the audience would be quite limited. Uh, now, you know, you've got a, a successful uh, podcast and you're not depending on, you know, uh, a high and mighty producer at ABC or, uh, or, or any other sort of traditional media institution. You just put uh, your stuff out there and then you grow an audience based on whether you appeal to, to, to the audience or, or not. That, that I think is, of huge value. But what we also see throughout the history of free speech is that when the public sphere is democratized, so either through new technology, so it could be the printing press, it could be the radio, it could be the telegraph, it could be, you know, cable TV and the internet, of course, there's this tendency of what I call elite panic. So the institutional gatekeepers who have enjoyed a privileged access to shape uh, and speak in, in, in the public sphere, panic about sort of allowing the unwashed mob, the, the insufficiently educated into the public sphere because they'll be led astray by demagogues, uh, and, uh, everything will come crashing down. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes elite panic is, is based on, on real pr- dilemmas. And, 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 and certainly there are people who say, extreme things when you know you know the the public sphere is less polished when you don't have editors <laughs> so so there are pros and cons i tend to think that the pros significantly outweigh the cons but i do acknowledge that there are cons but what we see is that the social media companies that initially so if you go back to 2012 for instance twitter would sort of only half jokingly call itself the free speech wing of the free speech party uh, so basically sort of saying, you know, we basically adopting, you know, it being inspired at least by First Amendment values. But then uh, after the 2016 presidential election, especially 
things changed. There was an enormous political pressure and, and pressure from civil society for, for, for social media companies to clamp down on speech, on whether it was hate speech or, or of disinformation. And now increasingly we see these huge centralized tech platforms privately owned adopt their their ever more restrictive terms uh, and and standards for for speech that you know and and they're not you know they're not bound to respect the first amendment or international human rights norms they can they can you know they can regulate speech whatever way they want so squadcast can come uh, and and say christopher we hated the podcast that you did with jacob uh, we're no longer going to host you. Uh, and, you know, you would have no recourse to the First Amendment. Um, but in practice, we have to acknowledge that when when Facebook has, I don't know, 2.7 billion users worldwide, it is, in fact, where free speech is, is exercised in practice. So, so that means that it has huge, uh, Im- a huge impact on the practical exercise of free speech, how these uh, big tech companies regulate speech on their platforms. And, you know, try being a politician today running a campaign and not being on social media. Good luck. Um, yeah, and, you know, even traditional media are, you know, dependent on their uh, news stories and, and everything else going viral on, 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 and being shared on, on, on social media. Um, so that means that I think to a certain degree, the, even though I don't think that Facebook, you know, I don't think that a user should be able to invoke the First Amendment in courts uh, for being thrown off uh, Facebook or, or Twitter, I still think that it's it doesn't make sense to say that the regulation of speech by private companies on their private platforms don't have anything doesn't have anything to do with free speech. Quite clearly, it does. So, so let's go here. Uh, I'm a guy that's been deplatformed by uh, twice by two different platforms, Apple Podcasts and LinkedIn, replatformed on both of them. In the case of Apple, about three weeks or so after, and in the case of LinkedIn, about 24 hours after. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, aha when you experience this stuff is exactly what you're describing, which is the big tech platforms uh, have no commitment at all to free speech are not bound by the first amendment and can do whatever the fuck they want to you at any moment. And they, and here's the other fascinating thing. Many behave in the following way. You're canceled. And what happens is you go to log in and you're not there. Hmm. And then you get a message. that says in the case of Apple, you don't get shit in the case of LinkedIn. It says you're canceled. I mean, it, they, they have some st- stupid euphemism for it that's quite funny actually like an interruption of service or some other bullshit like that um and if you essentially want to appeal it here's our process and it could take a million years and that's sort of what what happens and again no warning no nothing zero so the experience is number one these companies have no commitment to free speech i asked uh, linkedin multiple times would you send me a free speech policy? They pointed me every time to the exact same document, which is a publicly available document, which is a code of conduct document. To make sure I wasn't missing it, Jacob, I downloaded the document and I searched free speech and then I searched free and then I searched speech. 
And none of those configurations of those two words show up in the document they pointed me to. Yeah. Apple as well. Their document that is supposedly their free speech document is not. And uh, it only says that they're committed to uh, free speech and expression, but it has no definition of it, nothing. And so I guess the interesting thing about this to me is, well, certainly these are private companies. They can do whatever the hell they want. And their policy of, A, we, we don't have a policy on free speech. Our policy on free speech is we can do whatever we want, whenever we want. That's our policy. And B... We will uh, cancel you without warning. That's our policy. Those things are so fucking anti-American as as to be shocking to me. And yet that's where we are. Uh, you know, Madonna got canceled by Instagram because they didn't like her nipple. Same mm, experience. Yeah. No warning. No, no. You know, and this happens over and over and over again. And so. So with all that said, I want to drill down on your perspective of what should these companies do and not do? And are they different now? Are they more, are they moving into being public utilities and therefore require a different bar than, hey, we're just a private company and we can do whatever we want? Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the, one of the main problems is that we've moved from you could say a more decentralized and horizontal internet towards a much more vertical and centralized one. So you have these huge, you know, you and I are both old enough to remember the good old days of the blogosphere, right? Uh, you know, uh, everyone had a blog, some were more interesting and successful than others. But what you would do is that you'd, you read these blogs and you'd link to all kinds of other blogs. And, 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 and in that way, you know, it was quite a fascinating uh, in, in, uh, environment, and, and some of these blogs were really good. Of course, there are still blogs, but 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 at, at at that time, no one really cared about the content moderation, if that was even a, a, a term back then, of a blog, even if it was a successful blog with 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 say five hundred thousand readers, because it simply did not impact the ecosystem of information and opinion on the internet the same way that the content moderation of Facebook does just because it has 2.7 billion users and, and, and everything is centralized the way uh, it does. So I think a lot of it probably, and I'm not a technical expert in any sense of the, uh, uh, but a lot of it probably has to do with the architecture of the current internet. And so I, I hope for a more decentralized ecosystem of, of social media, uh, sort of reverting back to the original visions of the internet in, in an updated version. I think that would be the best case scenario. While we're waiting for some competitor to come up with a model like that, that actually also appeals to users. Because, you know, let's be honest, the, the fact is also that, you know, these companies are not just removing content and banning people just because they like it they you know they do it because there's a demand for content moderation both by users who don't want particular kinds of of, of content but also by advertisers and of course by by politicians you know even though even though facebook cannot be sued for user content uh, generally you know, it's not fun being Mark Zuckerberg and being hauled before aggressive senators on Capitol Hill at, at aggressive hearings all the time. So they want 
you know, they want to take care of the PR side and their stakeholder management. And, and so they, you know, it's a small price getting rid of some e- extremist voices. What do you want? Do you want to stand up for some extremist voices that are loathsome to the vast majority? Or do you want to get rid of them and play nice with, uh, with the majority on Capitol Hill and your advertisers and, and vocal civil society? In that sense, it becomes a very simple, uh, you know, in many cases, it becomes a simple calculus. Uh, and I also just, you know, once you're a publicly traded company, you're going to look at your share prices. Do I want to host neo-Nazis and watch my shares plunge as advertisers, you know, uh, go after me? Or do I want to host someone who is rightly or wrongly being accused of being a, a, a racist? You know, there's going to be a huge temptation to just dump someone who's seen as toxic by very vocal activists and others. And then you have an even bigger issue, which is the global perspective. So. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube are global platforms. So my organization, we did a a study, a survey on attitudes towards free speech in 33 countries around the world. And, you know, there are huge differences between the degree of tolerance for free speech in the U.S. and Denmark on the one hand. So we're among sort of the the most tolerant countries uh, when it comes to to free speech uh, in the world. But if you go to Nigeria, Pakistan or Russia, you will find that tolerance drops enormously, especially when it comes to sort of questions like religion or uh, national symbols uh, uh, and so on. And so how do you keep everyone happy on these platforms? There are no single set of terms of service that will successfully be able to cater to the average Facebook user in Russia and the US at the same time, simply just because they have different preferences when it comes to where the line should be drawn. So so that's why I don't think you can regulate your way out of this. I don't think that treating these companies as public utilities uh, is the way. I think one way things could get a little better while we, we wait for sort of the decentralized model that I advocate is providing users more control over the content that they are being confronted with. So for instance, there's nothing inherently wrong with being offended. That's a human emotion. Uh, and, and you could, pr- you, there are probably things that offend you, but they might be different from what offends me. And so if you're able to have a third party develop an easily accessible filter that you, that, that conforms to your, to what you think is offensive that uh, or content that you don't want to see, then you can control that and maybe you can filter out a lot of the content rather than you going to Facebook and says, I don't want, I don't like this kind of content. Please censor it for everyone universally. Well, Twitter does this well with photographs, I think. Yeah, I think that, I think they're, they're, they're sort of moving further along uh, implementing that idea. It'll be very interesting to see what happens with Elon Musk now. Uh, as, as, as the owner of almost 10% of the shares and, and, a, and a board member and, and someone who... You know, they were genius, in my opinion, uh, Jacob, for doing that. Right? I, don't, I don't know if you know this expression. They can either be out of the tent pissing in or in the tent pissing out. Yeah. <laughs> and so they clearly said, hey, listen, uh, let's get him in the tent pissing out. And they limited the amount of shares he can buy. I forget what it's limited to, but he essentially he can't buy the company. They put him on the board and now he's in the tent pissing out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and we'll see, you know, you know, obviously he has a lot of money to burn. So, but, you know, you, your commitment to principles tend to be tempered 
when you see the share price plummet. So if you know if 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 you know imagine that Elon Musk had bought the amount of shares that he did pre-COVID, and then suddenly COVID breaks out, and there's a huge pressure on Twitter to remove so-called misinformation. Um, is Elon Musk then going to say, no, we're not going to change our policies because, uh, you know, it might affect legitimate, uh, uh, scientifically, uh, scientific debates and, 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 and differences, even though, even as the share price plummets because, you know, advertisers flee and, and, and politicians and traditional media demand instant uh, instant action on, on on behalf of Twitter, you know, that would probably take a very very principled shareholder and someone with a lot of money to to to, to burn to to adopt that position. Um, and so it'll be very interesting because you know it's it's inevitable that these kind of uh, um, these kind of crises uh, break out all the time that uh, that put social media companies on the spot. Uh, and with demands that they do something, and that something is typically a demand that they remove more and more content. So let's get into some of these specifics. You mentioned COVID is a great example. And maybe you'll tell me that I have a two black and white sort of uh, zero or one binary opinion with free speech. Um, But in my opinion, with quote unquote COVID misinformation, my problem starts with the phrase, And where I start with it is who decides what's information and what's misinformation. Now, I understand the argument. I believe on one side is, well, the government and and the scientists working with the government decide what's information and what's misinformation. That's what we say. Right. And then we therefore can or want to uh, deplatform or somehow get rid of or, or lower the volume of, or however you want to describe it, people who have a counter opinion, a counter narrative uh, about COVID people who say masks don't work. People who say uh, distancing doesn't work. People who say it's a hoax. People who say it's no worse than the flu. People who think that Bill Gates trained a group of Bigfoots to install misters on 5G towers to spread the virus so that he could sell us the vaccine with a chip in it so that he could monitor all of us. Right. And so my problem with it is the minute I say that you said misinformation. We're fucked. We're now on the slippery slope. Hmm. And so do I like a lot of the things that were said by people about COVID that probably caused some lives to be lost? No. And it doesn't make any sense to me. However, if I want to have a COVID denier on this podcast, which I have not done, by the way, and many have tried to get on, but that's we can talk about the the choice of what what to speak about, not speak about. But um, if I want to do that, I we are either committed to free speech or we're not committed to free speech. And the government or Twitter or Facebook saying that I can't have Jacob on my podcast because his ideas around free speech are in conflict with ours it starts to get scary because somebody has to be the decider. And the minute somebody's yeah. the decider, uh, the speech is no longer free. Yeah. And, and, and I think you're pointing to a, a real problem. And also, you know, when it comes to scientific misinformation, uh, 
very often these debates are not black and white. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure that when we look back at COVID in 10 or 20 years from now, scientists will have discovered things that have changed in ways that may be significant, uh, you know, some of the things that we believed in or held uh, true or held as the best available signs while we were going through it. You know, we used to put leeches on people, right, Jacob? (laughs) (laughs) No, but, you know, even, you know, I come from a country, Denmark, where we have a high degree of trust in, in, in institutions and each other, which I think is generally a quite a good, good idea. It, 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 it makes for for in many ways uh, a, a, a good society, um, and and you know I have a high degree of trust in our equivalent of the CDC. However, they made numerous mistakes. So in, initially, you know, you know, in March of 2020, uh, or or February of of 2020, you know, when you were starting to see sort of COVID, they said to Danes. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. You can you can go skiing in Austria. Uh, it's not a problem. We don't believe that uh, this uh, will really turn into a <laughs> to 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 a pandemic. And lots of Danes went skiing in Austria, and you know that became a super spreader event. Then they said, yeah, you know, don't wear face masks; they won't work. Then that changed, and so on and so on. And and to their credit. You know, uh, some some of these um, people and, and experts have have admitted that you know we were wrong on certain issues, and that's what science is about. You know, that's how 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 does science develop? You know, you have certain theories, you back them up with 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 the best available uh, data and and methods, uh, and then you you try to test them, and then you know you might believe them, hold them to be true for a while, and then suddenly you find out that. Uh, they were not true, or maybe they were only partially true. Uh, and and but but it's also interesting that the Royal Society, which is like Britain's leading sort of scientific uh, organization, have actually explicitly warned that removing or deleting content when it comes to scientific misinformation is 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 counter-effective. Um, so it might actually inculcate mistrust in the organizations that are sort of being cast as the ultimate arbiters of scientific truth because what do you what do you do you know so uh, you you have these guidelines um by by public health authorities and it uh, it's not because they're sort of in on a conspiracy but they might just be wrong about certain things but then they say oh you know this is the truth and uh please remove the, the misinformation uh that doesn't conform to this and then suddenly they find out well what we believe two weeks ago might actually no longer be the best available uh, science. Not because they were part, not because they were lying to the public, but that's how it's going to be framed by people. People are going to lose trust. We say, well, two two weeks ago you said that this uh, this was uh, you know what we said was a conspiracy theory. You said that this was the, uh, the science, uh, incontestable. Now you're saying something completely different. And so I would, I would, I, I argued that, you know, the limits on scientific misinformation should be very narrow. So it should be something like, you know, if someone goes out and say, you know, uh, I, I urge you to drink bleach as a cure, you know, then um, that, that's, that, 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 that might be sort of the equivalent of inciting direct uh, harm. It's um, so, so, so I could understand why you, 
as a as a private platform would not host that kind of uh, of, of content. So, so could I pause you there? This is another yeah. part of the discussion that is largely missing, in my opinion, certainly here in the United States, which is uh, free speech. The First Amendment doesn't say I get to say whatever the fuck I want and uh, there's no ramification for what I say ever. That's not what it says. No. So to your point, um, the big one, and I'm not a lawyer, but I know you've, you've, you live in this world. The big one is inciting violence or in, in intentional speech to create uh, a meaningful likelihood of harm. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know if I'm getting the exact yeah, yeah. words so, right. So but. like uh, incitement to, to imminent uh, lawless action that is likely to occur, I think is, is the paraphrasing the, the standard under Brandenburg versus Ohio from, from 1969, which was like, as I remember the case, it's a, uh, it's, it's a Ku Klux Klan KKK member from Ohio who's being recorded on video standing in front of ho- his hooded brethren and they're armed. And he says, you know, something, uh, you know, if the government doesn't do something about the Jews and the N and the N words, uh, we're going to take action into our own hands. And he's convicted. Uh, under this uh, Ohio um, law, and the Supreme Court says, well, that doesn't meet the threshold uh, under the First Amendment. So that's a very, very high, you know, if you can't convict, you know, bona fide racists who indirectly threaten to use violence against the Jews and blacks, then that says something about the, the you know, how direct the incitement uh, has to be, uh, how, how close uh, related to, to, to a very, very high likelihood of, of, of imminent uh, violence. Um, now, my I, understanding, I, I t- and, and maybe, uh, maybe help me here, um, if, if I say something horrible, like I threaten your life, I don't even want to say the words, but let's say I were to threaten your life. My understanding of the laws here are that if a, quote-unquote, you know, it's the legal reasonable person test, if a reasonable person under that context, in that situation, and I said something horrible about um, that I was going to take your life, believed that was a statement that was going to be or could be backed up, that that crosses the line. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not sh- sure about the, you know, the, the threshold for sort of true threats, which is slightly different from sort of incitement to violence but but it but but anyhow it's it's a high it's a high threshold under the first amendment for for someone to be uh, convicted for for viewpoint which i think you know uh is 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 a, a good idea i you know when i look at american history restrictions on free speech uh, have in my opinion done more harm than good and ironically given that many sort of liberal progressive argue that free speech is being weaponized against minorities, I think that free speech has been absolutely essential for all oppressed groups and minorities, and there have been quite a few in American history, uh, for them to stake a claim in uh, and, and, and demand uh, equal dignity and equal protection under the laws. So, uh, and, and at the same time, I would argue that censorship and restrictions of free speech have been a uh, a preferred tool of uh, of of, um, of attempts to uh, to keep down specific groups. So you know you could 
you could go to the 1830s in, in America, uh, where in the South, so if you it were in Alabama and you were spreading abolitionist ideas, um, you could formally be, be, be punished by death. Um, uh, and, and, you know, there were draconian punishments all over the South if you, if you were to argue against uh, the legality or moral or morality of uh, of slavery, and and you know even after slavery was abolished, you know Jim Crow laws depended heavily on uh, suppressing um, su- suppressing um, the the calls for racial justice, those of, of the, the civil rights movement. So Martin Luther King, I think, was you know. Sp- Arrested twenty nine times, wrote some of his best stuff in in prison cells, and you know twenty four hours before he died, he 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 gave a speech where he I think rightly um, called out the hypocrisy of of, uh, of southern states for for using these sort of injunctions against uh, against peaceful protests, and he said you know if I was in Russia if if I was in in Russia or China or totalitarian states I could understand this but somewhere I read about the freedom of speech somewhere I read about the 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 right to to peaceful protest and of course he was referencing the the language of the first amendment and saying you know America live up to your ideals and those ideals have to apply to everyone you know regardless of of color or status Frederick Douglass was another fantastic Proponent of uh, of human equality, uh, very powerful already against slavery, and he said, you know, the right of speech is a very precious one, especially to the oppressed. Uh, and and he was someone who was heckled by white Bostonians when he gave a speech in in Boston at a meeting against slavery, and and then he wrote this fantastic speech, which I urge everyone to to read, called "A Plea for Free Speech in Boston," which sets out evergreen arguments in favor of free speech and and against. Censorship and both censorship by the government, but also by by private by private uh, individuals. You know, another you know very inspiring person is is Ida B. Wells, um, uh, who who I you know I don't know if there's ever been a braver journalist than, than Ida B. Wells, who sort of roamed around the South and also had her a newspaper sort of documenting lynchings, and wrote about you know. Exposing the lies, so so very often lynchings would sort of be justified by uh, these claims that, uh, that that black men would rape white women, and that's why they were execute. Uh, that's why they were, were were being lynched. And so she uh, sort of wrote that you know very often they were they, these were sort of voluntary relationships, uh, white women wanting to engage in relationships with blacks, and that was something that that had white southerns. Did not like to hear, and so you would see very direct incitement to violence against her. And her newspaper was burned to the ground, and she had to flee to 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 Chicago, to the north, uh, for for her life. But but uh, so so in that sense, I think you know, uh, free speech was absolutely essential for for the improvements that y- you've seen uh, when it comes to to racial justice, even if there are still problems. Uh, another, I think, you know, very powerful. Image of 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 what free speech can do is you know uh, I think it was in 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 1919 so there was a number of women protesting in front of the White House and they were burning an effigy of President Woodrow Wilson I believe it was at the time uh, and and sort of shouting at him calling him a, an authoritarian for for not 
for not moving ahead with with providing women the right to vote. And these women were arrested uh, <laughs> uh, for for their for their protest. And so I was living in New York in 2018, and I was living on the Upper West Side. And I took my son to a museum. And then when we exited the museum. Tens of thousands of people, most of them women uh, in pink pussy hats, were protesting Donald Trump in language that uh, was certainly uh, uh, not very flattering and probably uh, uh, much more expletive <laughs> with, with many more sort of cuss words than, than those used in 1919. And the NYPD were, were standing there to protect their First Amendment rights to protest peacefully. I think that's a very powerful sign of the progress that free speech uh, allows and, and which was essential for women also to, to demand equality in, in, in the democracy. But we tend to forget those stories. We tend to take free speech for granted once we've enjoyed it uh, for, for a while. Thank you for that. That was awesome. Now, here's what I try to wrap my head around. If I take a very binary, very black and white approach, free speech is free speech, period. There's no such thing as hate speech. I, I don't know what that term means. So again, and anytime anybody says I can't say something, it's censorship with the asterisks that we've already agreed to, which is incitement of violence. That's my understanding of if the pure free speech is free speech. So if you go, if you go to that place, at least in my mind, and sort of this is a theory I'm trying to test on you, Jacob, there are two guardrails that are in place other than the incitement to violence, which is social norms. So you mentioned earlier the N-word. We collectively have all agreed that uh, if you're not a black person, you can't use that word. I can't say that word. I personally don't care that I can't say that word. If it is socially acceptable when talking about that word for me to say the N-word instead of the word, I will do that. I don't care. I'm not one of these idiots who goes, oh, well, rappers get to. I understand cultures and I, I know exactly what I, at least I think I know what's going on with that word. And I know why I'm not allowed to say it. And I don't give a shit and I don't say it. And the social norms support that. And I have no desire to kind of rail against that one by way of example. The other sort of guardrail are laws. And so one of the things going on here in the United States, and, and, and let me know if you're familiar, if you're not, I'll ca catch you up, is the current a civil lawsuit against conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. Hmm. Uh, are you at all familiar, Jacob? I, I am familiar with, uh, with Mr. Jones and his uh, wonderful contributions to uh, impartial journalism. And the yes, I, I figured you might be. <laughs> And when he got deplatformed by all the major platforms, and, and, and just for the record, I think he's disgusting. And if I, wasn't a, uh, if I wasn't the kind of person I am, I would want to do things to him because of how disgusting he is. But we've agreed we're not doing that, and I'm not doing that either. Um, how, however, uh, he got deplatformed, particularly over what he said about Sandy Hook and other things, but that was the big one at the time. Uh, claiming that the Sandy, the horror in Sandy Hook didn't happen and those children didn't get murdered and so forth and so on. And, um, and that there were child actors and it was staged and it was a false flag, all the th crazy things he said. And he got sued by the families 
and um, they won. And as of now, um, there's a, you know, the back and forth about what the settlement's going to be is happening. And I, I have a theory about what might happen there. But anyway, long story longer, in that case, I don't think um, Alex Jones, in spite of the horrible things he said, should have been deplatformed. It's free speech. And if I f- speak freely in a way that causes material damage to someone in the United States, we have a legal system to remedy that. And it's not up to fill in the blank big tech company to censor him. The laws are in place. And what we said would happen when somebody has hateful free speech that causes damage in this case is playing out the way to the best of my understanding, our laws are written. And so with all that said, a, does that make sense to you? Does that, does that land and B to the, the degree to which it does, why don't we take a more pure version of free uh, of, uh, sort of definition of free speech and allow social norms and laws to sort of deal with uh, speech that is uh, either inappropriate or uh, materially harmful? Yeah, you know, I, I um, well, first of all, when it comes to the N word, um, it's actually you know I was watching Django on Change. Unchained the other day, which is from 2012. And, you know, the N-word is being used repeatedly, including by, by white actors and, uh, and, 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 and even by, um, um, what's his name? The, uh, the director. Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> How can you forget that name? And it, <laughs> but to, to me, it, it, you know, uh, I, I understand where you're coming, but it just seems to me that the social norms around that word have changed so dramatically and so fast that so it doesn't even matter what kind of context. And, and it's interesting to me, you know, I, I don't personally think about, you know, what kind of, you know, what, you know, am I a person of color? Am I black or white? It, it doesn't really matter to me. It's, it's not part of my identity in, in that way. But I remember doing a podcast interview with sort of a a prominent um a prominent american free speech uh activist and and we and i and i was talking about the brandenburg versus ohio case that we discussed before and i said the n word in uh, uh in and and so she sort of freaked out uh, uh about you actually it. said it i i said it yeah yeah um <laughs> Uh, and, and I said, well, you know, this is a discussion about free speech. We're, we're talking about a, a specific case and, and we want to know what that, that, that person said. So I don't know if, if it's, if things have gone too far when, when, when no matter what the context, uh, you can't, uh, use, uh, that word and, and it will get you, uh, fired and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and so on. And also sort of, you know, you know, should I be able to use it? Uh, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, if, if Obama is black, I guess I'm black. You know, my, my father is from East Africa. His father is from East Africa. My, my mother is white, uh, and, and his mother was white. So, so I guess, uh, we, we'd be the same, but I'm, you know, I'm equally white as I'm black. <laughs> and, and when it comes to Alex Jones, yeah, you know, I, I found that it was, it was sort of, it showed the power and dominance of sort of the big platforms that within a very short time, they just all decided to, to, to throw him off. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. I, I haven't gone through all the content that, that Jones has, has, has ever sort of spewn out there. 
So it might be that there are things that uh, that that were sort of uh, flirting with incitement. Uh, I, I don't know, um, but it but it, at least it to me, you know, I write in the book. Um, so I'm, I'll, I'll 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 quote here: "Few mourn the sudden death of Alex Jones from the respectable parts of the internet. Still, the swift and decisive action taken behind closed doors at these huge private tech company." raised very pertinent questions of crucial importance in the digital age. What are the limits of online free speech and who decides them? So who, you know, who the hell knows, who, you know, who, who, who took the decision uh, by, at, at Apple, Facebook, YouTube, and Spotify, and, and ultimately Twitter to, uh, to, to throw him off? And what was the, what was the process? Who weighed the, the pros and cons? What were, you know, uh, who, who, who said, you know, oh, these are the things that, that weigh in favor of his, uh, right to, to, to use his voice on our platforms are these, uh, the things that mitigate. Was it purely PR? You know, we can't stand this anymore. Uh, was it in, was it even in conformity with their terms of service or was it just sort of an extra, you know, sort of decision to say, oh, you know, he might not actually have said something that violate our terms, but, the way we're going to interpret them now is because there's so much attention of, on us uh, and because this is turning into a shitstorm and a PR nightmare, we're just going to throw them off. Uh, and that, of course, sets a, a bad precedent if you can sort of um, create these shitstorms to get people thrown off. Uh, and, and that might even affect people uh, who are less controversial uh, and less odious than Alex Jones. And uh, most people, I think, you know, be be difficult to match the odiousness of, of Alex Jones. Thank you for that. And that's exactly everything you just said there is uh, uh, sort of ties back to some of your comments at the beginning of our conversation around sort of that, that we are in decline. Now, how do you process uh, wokeism? Um, you know, there's this huge, so there's this big deplatforming discussion that we just had, and yeah. then there's this wokeism, and there's all sorts of new language that's been created, and there's, I just heard that a person that I know tangentially, their daughter came out as, I think it was omnisexual, mm-hmm. and since she did that, I think she's in her early 20s or mid-20s, that she feels much better in life and she's kind of out as an omnisexual and this and that and the other. And I'll admit it. I didn't know what an omnisexual was. I had to Google that shit. And it sounded to me like what we used to call bisexual, but what the hell do I know? My point is there's all this new language and there's all this new wokeism and you have to be incredibly careful. And there's a debate about how many genders there are and all of these sorts of things. And so how do you kind of triangulate this sort of social discussion around all of these topics in the context of free speech? Yeah, that's a very uh, that, that that's a very good question, uh, and one that certainly uh, not only sort of raises dilemma but also a, a lot of uh, a feeling. I tend to think that autonomy means that you should be able to define yourself uh, however you want uh, to, and that you you know that the the quality of being a human being is what ultimately defines us uh and that's so everyone is is deserving of of respect but i don't think that if you define yourself as an omnisexual that means that you should get sort of special protection 
from speech that you might find offensive. And I think so, some of the things that I see, for instance, in the sort of this fierce debate between uh, radical fe- uh, feminists and trans activists, for instance, uh, where, where free speech seems to be a hostage of, of that discussion. And I see among some of those who uh, might be termed woke, uh, you know, I think they, they argue in ways that are very different from, you know, the civil rights movement or other sort of groups that could legitimately claim to have been subject to to uh, to hatred and discrimination and so on, sort of a demand to be protected from speech and censor others rather than, than arguing we just want the same rights as everyone else. We want free speech for ourselves. Um, and I, and, and, and that I think is a, is a dangerous development because it, it creates sort of a, a race to the bottom where, where, you know, recognition of your identity, the, the ultimate, the, the, the sort of the, the, the ultimate, um, recognition of your I- identity is the ability to, to have it protected by, you know, either hate speech or, or, or sort of a speech code on social media. Um, and, and that I think is, is an unhealthy incentive. And I don't want to argue here that, that it's the majority of trans activists who, who claim that. I'm just saying that there are some, some vocal ones that, that to me seem very intent on, on, uh, on policing, uh, discourse. Uh, and I think that's unhealthy, uh, is, especially due to the reasons that I that I that I mentioned before about the role in, of free speech in advancing the rights of, of of minorities. You know, I saw I think in 2021 there was a Gallup poll in the U.S. which said that 70 percent of Americans support same-sex marriage. Uh, now, compared to Denmark, that's quite low. But you know it's 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 very high, even compared to like a decade or two decades ago. Even among sort of Republicans who are more socially conservative, there's a there's a plurality I think who support same sex marriage. In 1991, 94 percent of Americans supported interracial marriage. Go back to 1958, it was four percent. So that's a dramatic increase in, in in tolerance, and not a single person in that time has been censored by the government or thrown in jail due to their uh, due, due to their racist speech on the other hand there have been many an activist for racial justice for for same sex marriage who have exercised their free speech rights to organize protests petitions uh, write compelling stuff that appeal to their to their citizens uh, of 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 why they deserve to be treated with equal dignity and i think that has had a profound effect which is much more likely to win uh, uh, to win the case for 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 equality than 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 using uh, speech restrictions. So if I if I try to interpret what you're saying there, Jacob, in in this case, the guardrail of social norms, what was acceptable in the '50s and now would would be completely unacceptable. Social norms have kind of taken care of it. Laws haven't. Yeah, social not well. Well, you know, I think laws have 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 played a, uh, an important part. So, like uh, civil rights, uh, civil rights act, and all kinds of laws that sort of well, and anti discrimination laws, right? You can't discriminate laws, on hiring. That, but but not. But ju- I'm just saying laws. It, it was not laws that prohibited speech or put bigots and racists uh, banned banned their 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 opinions. That's what I'm arguing. I'm sure there are many laws that that played a a vital role. 
but just not ones that were directly targeting speech. Um, whereas I think speech, the exercise of speech played uh, an enormous uh, role. You know, I went to Arkansas, went to, to Little Rock Central High, and you, you go to that museum and you see these black kids who were, you know, escorted by the National Guard uh, going into a, uh, a, a, a school that had been racially uh, segregated. And you see these white parents, sort of their hateful eyes and these placards uh, against race mixing. And, and, you know, these, these black students had to be escorted around on the school by, by, by armed soldiers. You know, that moves you as a human being in a way that is much more profound, I think, than if someone had been had been fined or put in prison for, for saying uh, something racist. Yes. Yes, very much so. And by the way, I couldn't help but I have the mind of a child, uh, Jacob, and while you were talking about same-sex marriage, the legendary um, Robin Williams had a joke, and I, I won't get it exactly right, but it was something to the effect of, I'm, I'm not sure why gay people want to get married because straight people uh, have been having same uh, have been in same sex marriages forever it's the same sex every time <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a Robin Williams joke <laughs> but I, I digress the other interesting thing as it relates to free speech and social norms something that I think has been under discussed is what has happened with the war in Ukraine as it relates to private companies Mm-hmm. And as the move for sanctions started ahead of major governments, companies started pulling out of uh, pulling out of uh, of Russia. Apple was the first major tech company, I believe, uh, and that was four or five days into the war. And then there was this cascade. And 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 the thing that most people I don't think realize, or certainly is not being talked about as much as I think it should be, is that what caused you know, hundreds of companies in cases uh, costing those companies billions and billions and billions of dollars to pull out of Russia was not the government. Joe Biden did not call the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook, and say, you got to stop doing business. That's not what happened. They did it on their own, but they didn't do it necessarily on their own. They did it because of a radical uh, volume of individuals being heard on the internet. And so we now have a situation where the digital protesting, if you could call it that, is so powerful and so scalable today. And Zelensky is waging the first native digital war in that he's a master at social media. All of those things build so quickly that companies pull out of this country in a way that we've never seen in the course of human history. And so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on sort of the Internet's ability to kind of multiply free speech and multiply sort of the will of the people such that in this case, non-government corporations uh, are forced to do something that they might not have done on their own. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I guess it cuts both ways. In this particular instance, I, you know, I, I think you're right in that it shows that 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 digital activism can cause change. I also think, you know, if you look at the sanctions that are being adopted now by Western governments and especially sort of uh, European governments, I mean, look at the position of the of, of the Germans. You know, they've just done a complete 180. They they they've changed their foreign policy 
in ways that were unthinkable a month ago. Uh, and that would not have happened without a, a public uh, outcry that was really amplified through the use of social media. So uh, in that sense, I, th I think it's, uh, you know, it showed the strength of it. Of course, it might also be used uh, in, in cases where, uh, you know, people have, have discovered uh, or have been subjected to sort of uh, shitstorms based maybe on, on untrue allegations. And, and, and in those instances, it, it might not be very pleasant. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, and, and in general, you know, as I mentioned, the European Union has banned Russian propaganda, which I think is a huge mistake, because what have we seen? We've seen that if the battle between the Ukrainians and the Russians had been decided in the sphere of information, then the you know Ukrainians would have won uh, within forty eight hours because in the West I'm not I'm not talking globally but in the West the Ukrainians have just won you know you really have to get out to the far edges of the right and left on you know on the on the horseshoe theory uh, <laughs> uh, to find sort of uh, Putin apologists and and those who 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 favor um, the, the 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 Russian point of view and and buy their their propaganda, which at any rate is is really pathetic, and I also think we see that social media, you know, even though you, you can spread misinformation, I think there's a lot of people really uh, using open source intelligence uh, to debunk in real time um, Russian disinformation and 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 providing information that is being used by traditional media in in real time, sort of really contributing to. To, to sort of piercing the, the fog of war in ways that would have been unthinkable uh, before. So in, in that sense, I also tend to think that in, in this conflict, uh, freedom of information and access to information has been a net, net benefit, um, yes. at least if, you, if you're on the side of a country uh, being uh, invaded by its aggressive uh, neighbor, um, perhaps not if you're, if, if you're still in the, in the pro-Putin camp. Yes. And interestingly which enough, why, which is why the Russians, of course, uh, adopt uh, censorship measures that make the, the EU's uh, measures pale completely in comparison. And, and which I think I think now Russia has really sort of taken a step towards old fashioned totalitarianism in, in the way that they crack down on protests. Yes. And the use of social media here, to your point, when the war first broke out, like Many people, I was glued to news for, you know, multiple days and was sort of interstitialing back and forth between the major networks here, uh, the BBC and uh, mostly Twitter, because for real time news, uh, at least in my experience, Twitter is, is the platform. And so as I was toggling around all of these news consumption um, paradigms, if you will, it just became like so radically clear so fast that if you want to know what's going on, you want to be on Twitter. And to your yeah. point, when you bump into someone in the Ukraine who posts a video uh, that occurred within an hour or in some cases is live streaming things. And you see, I mean, I remember seeing one where they were clearly in an apartment building. There was clearly a Russian tank below them and they threw a bomb out of that window. There was clearly multiple people talking and a bomb went out of the window, hit the tank and blew that thing up. And they were all laughing and cheering like it. it it's a, it's as 
it's as though you're there, right? And so it's yeah. it's very hard to ignore because the citizen journalism, the citizen activism of it brings it straight to you. And with all due respect to the major media networks in the United States, they can't compete with Twitter for news. No, I, I and, and I completely agree. And that's also why they rely on, on social media to, to, to such an extent. Now, uh, just a couple things before I let you go, if I could. Um, free speech sits right next to another sort of important passion that I deeply believe in, which is uh, real dialogue. And we recently had um, David Gergen, and this is one of the things that he's most concerned about. And we talked about as well, his sort of being a person who's promoting real dialogue. And he, given he advised four presidents, two, uh, three of whom were Republicans and one of whom was a Democrat, he's, he's a very unusual person in the United States. And so all that said, I have a fear, Jacob, that at least in this country, you'll tell me what you think about Europe, the ability to have authentic dialogue, the ability to converse with somebody whose opinion on the surface you detest and makes you even angry to hear them say the things that they say, our inability to hang in those conversations with each other, in my mind, is an increasing horrifying, frankly, cancer. And we're now at a place in the United States where most Americans think other Americans are the greatest threat to the country. And so how do you connect free speech and dialogue and sort of the importance of being able to have dialogue with people who you're radically opposed to? Yeah, I, I think you're right, though. I think sometimes, you know, we just praise Twitter for being, you know, absolutely essential during uh, the Ukraine conflict. I think sometimes, you know, when it comes to real debate, Twitter is not the best platform. And I think but but also you know it's actually quite few Americans who are on on Twitter. It's a special uh, part of special demographics, and and also you know those among those who are on Twitter, it's only sort of relatively few who who create most of the the content. So I also think there's a danger of confusing Twitter with the entire public sphere. Uh, on the other hand, it's it's also true that you know when I occasionally watch. MSNBC and Fox, I very quickly turn away because it just seems so clear to me that, you know, it's, it, it, it's sort of political theater and, and they're sort of filtering everything through an ideological partisan uh, lens that is just based on, on, on bashing the other side uh, and, and being completely uninterested in in uh, in the larger picture and 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 very has very little to do with curiosity but i think you know when you scratch the surface and if you want to dig deeper i still think there are many institutions uh uh and 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 aspects of in, in the united states where you can find interesting dialogues uh and and so on uh, I, I i think i i think that that is still that is still uh, possible but there's no doubt that you know, political tribalism and the culture war has 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 has, has threatened um, that great ideal of of a democracy, of a deliberative democracy. Where where and 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 let's not forget that one of the most essential roles of the, of free speech is that it is the antithesis of violence, right? So you know, there was a time where if I believed in in religion one way and you believed in the other way, we thought that we would have to eliminate each other or at least live in, in, in different states because there was no way 
a we could have a society where you believe one thing and I believe in other things and and then you know you had societies where ideology was was seen in the same way sort of a zero sum game and and we've we've developed this fantastic concept where we we're, we're actually able to to be spouses neighbors friends uh and 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 compatriots uh even though we have radically different ideas about politics uh about uh religion and we still can live in peace we can love each other we can be affectionate uh with another we can have deep and meaningful friendships and and i think it's really important to cherish that uh, and but that requires a, 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 an element of self self discipline on the parts of of a citizenry sort of training our tolerance muscle if you like uh, and engaging with people who think differently from ourselves um and 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 sort of not following our uh, our instincts of uh, sort of wanting to to police the speech of others or wanting to to distance ourselves from those who who think uh, who think differently uh, and I, I you know i think there are many interesting organizations i just wrote uh, a piece yesterday for heterodox academy which i think i think they're doing a great job on when it comes to sort of fostering heterodox ideas and and viewpoint diversity at at, at colleges and universities uh, and and i think there are many interesting initiatives like that and and that's you know also the strength of free speech uh, and 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 the, those ideals is that when you're you know when you're in a in a rut you can actually use free speech to try and overcome it and and get to a better place um because uh free speech and freedom of thought allows us to challenge the conventions and it allows us to look critically at where we are and and come up with prescriptions and 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 new ideas for how we can better ourselves both individually but also as a society and 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 hopefully uh that's what we're in the process of doing. Yes, amen, hallelujah. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned universities. I think a lot of people on the right in this country believe that universities have tilted way far left and the wokeism's gone insane and they're not enough right-oriented if I could call it that voices uh in universities in the United States and I'm not an expert but I that's when you hear people being canceled at universities because of controversial ideas, I don't know, that that scares the shit out of me because I thought that was one of the places in our culture where we said, this is the place where we, that we are going to live in the meritocracy of ideas. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If you go back 100 years, it would certainly be people on the left who were being canceled, if you want, uh, on universities. So, you know, in 1917, Columbia University fired two uh, professors for opposing American involvement in World War One. And interestingly, the New York Times wrote an editorial that praised Columbia for getting rid of these teachers who, who spread radicalism and socialism and, and poisonous teachings. Uh, and, and, you know, at Harvard, uh, you, you saw some of the same things. You know, socialist instructors were... were uh, you, you know, there were demands that they were that they should be fired, and and you know, I work with the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, who who do you know, great job defending academic freedom in the U.S. And I think you know, I think if you look at at uh, their database on on scholars under threat, it's not only people on the right or the center right who are being who are being targeted; it's actually also people on the left. 
Um, but I think it's true that there, you know, um, and, and many uh, universities, especially perhaps elite universities, liberals tend to outnumber uh, conservatives. Um, so, so that probably means that the orthodoxies that are likely to be established in such places are, are likely to tilt more towards the, the liberal uh, than the, the than the conservative. And but you also see it among, you know, uh, a development where younger Americans and more liberal Americans are less tolerant of what they perceive to be racist speech than than any other generation since the, the, the boomer generation. So they view intolerance of intolerance as a crucial component of tolerance, <laughs> if you like. Uh, whereas as, 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 you know, the boomer generation and others saw tolerance of intolerance as, as part and parcel of, of, of the larger, uh, of, 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 of the larger value and ecosystem of, of tolerance. As, as you're talking, I'm, I'm flashing back to a memory a few years ago now, maybe three, four, I don't know. Uh, I was earlier in my podcast life, a professor or teacher from a high school in Silicon Valley reaches out to me on LinkedIn and says, um, I have a group of students who are going to be starting podcasting. I love your podcast would you consider coming and spending a little bit of time? And so I said, yes, and we did. So I went and they kind of interviewed me about podcasting and I asked them questions and tried to give them some pointers and things along those lines. Anyway, towards the end of the, uh, the, the luncheon that we had, Jacob, I asked them, what are your ideas for your first episodes? And they almost in unison said, well, intersectionality. Yeah. And I went, holy shit. You know, they're 14. 15, 16. I'm like, wow. Uh, and so I, 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 you know, I had that exact experience that you're describing. Yeah. So um, maybe one last thing, if I could. You have studied the history of speech, free speech. You've written this incredible book about it. With the, and so you have a lens that is completely unique. With your lens of the past and how we got to where we are with free speech. If you point that lens forward, what does the past and the evolution of free speech and where we are today, Jacob, um, how do you view the future of free speech? Maybe the next 10, 20 years or so. I think in the short term, sort of 10 years, I think it's likely to get worse. Um, but I also think that, or, and or hope that, Free speech is such an ingrained part of our culture, at least sort of in, in, in open democracies, that once you, 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 you cross a certain threshold, there'll be pushback. You know, once people who have argued for sort of, oh, we have to limit disinformation on, in, of, of, of this specific area, or we have to limit racist speech, when they see that, uh, you, you can't control it and those, limits are likely to going going to to affect others and people that they sympathize with uh we might see some pushback also i think you know when you see how free speech is being completely obliterated obliterated in in russia uh that might make it make us think twice about our own values and i think china in particular uh you know during the cold war Free speech could, to a certain extent, unite us, uh, even if there were sort of red scares and 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 so. But 
sort of in the West, you know, you thought of free speech as something, it was part of our identity. It was what set us apart from the totalitarian communist states. And with the rise of China, and, and China is obsessed about limiting free speech. Uh, so, you know, um, that, that might also be something that rallies uh, free speech and forces us to rediscover the, the value and what sets us apart, um, because we haven't been forced to think about our, 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 our basic values for a long time when we just thought that, you know, they, they, we could take them for granted and, 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 you know, we could take a slice here and there and that wouldn't really have any effects because uh, it wouldn't really, uh, uh, it, it, it was in, inconsequential. So, so mm. I, 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 I think and hope that we will be, uh, you know, it might get worse before it gets better, but I, but I still think that, that it will rebound. But I think the history of free speech is likely to see so always. And that's, that's how it's been. So there'll be peri- periods where free speech is, is, is in ascendancy and there'll be periods when it's, when it's in decline. So it's a constant battle. And uh, one lesson is that you should never take it for granted if you believe in it. At least. Well, Jacob, this has been an extraordinary conversation. I'm so grateful for uh, the gift of your time. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? I uh, have really enjoyed this. Uh, I better get back to my son and watch the last half of the Hunger Games. Uh, we're uh, watching the whole series together because you just finished reading the book. So uh, he's impatient be waiting for me. <laughs> well, tell him I apologize for keeping you for so long. And I, uh, I sure hope you enjoy your time together. And I deeply appreciate your uh, being with me today. And you are welcome back anytime, Jacob, anytime. Thanks, Chris. I, I really, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to, uh, to listening to it when you, uh, when you publish it. It's interesting you say that because I always listen to the episode pretty much the second it comes out. And the fun part for me, and this may sound crazy, but my favorite podcast is this podcast. <laughs> it is. And I say to other podcasters, if your podcast isn't your favorite fucking podcast, what are you doing? Anyway, I guess my point is, and I'd be curious, maybe send me an email uh, when you listen to it. But uh, the experience I have when I listen to it, when it drops, I forget that I was in the conversation completely. And I'm, I'm a listener. And from time to time, I'll, you know, I'll hear the guests say something. So you'll say something. And I hear myself go to respond and forget that it's myself. And I'll say, geez, I wish you would say this. And then I say the thing in my, in podcast that I'm saying in my head. Anyway, it's a very fun experience, at least for me to listen to the podcast as a listener and sort of go in and out of forgetting that I was actually in the conversation. Well, Chris, thanks a lot. I'll, uh, I'll run back uh, to my son and, and, and Hunger Games, and uh, I look forward to staying in touch. Please. Thank you, brother, and have a wonderful evening. You too. Thanks. Bye. Well, there he is, Jacob McCangoma. Uh, And if you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, please share this episode. If you're listening on a podcast player, which I assume you are, that podcast player has a share button and you can hit it right now and post it to social media and share it to everybody uh, in your um, uh, on your phone, everybody on your contact list. Why not send them this? Uh, there's no hotter topic right now and there's no more important topic. Also, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of Jacob's new spectacular book. It's called Free Speech, A History from Socrates 
to social media. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you so much for hanging out. We deeply appreciate you investing your time with us. Uh, also, check out our friends at Hallow App, the real life network for you and your real friends from the people who brought you WhatsApp. Check out H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P. My friends at Clary help you answer the most seminal question in business, which is, are you going to meet, beat, or miss your numbers, your revenue numbers. Clary is the first platform that empowers you to run revenue like an enterprise process. Now, all of your revenue-critical employees from marketing, sales, customer success, and finance and more can work together on revenue. Visit clari.com today. That's clary.com and get your whole company working together on revenue. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. My friends at Interview Valet are the leading podcast booking marketing agency, and they will get you on podcasts and they will help market those podcasts and help turn your podcast visits into business. Check out interviewvalet.com for podcast interview marketing. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Warning, the creators, producers, uh, and uh, pretty much everybody involved with this Oddcast were probably consuming libations. Uh, David Lee Roth reminds us to roll with the punches and get to what's real. George Orwell reminds us if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my top five. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution around here. And they build, uh, they're in charge of uh, Lockhead.com. Go to Lockhead.com right now and subscribe to Category Pirates. That's L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. Show notes by GM Simon. Uh, the brothers, RJ and EX Bobis, do our web development. And uh, the handsman talented Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheets to the wind. And we record these oddcasts with the platform from my friends at Squadcast.fm. If you want to do legendary podcasts, Podcasts in the cloud, check out squadcast.fm. And for the love of whoever you love, please be kind and get out of the left-hand lane. Some of us have very fast cars, and we like to drive them fast. Get out of the left-hand lane. <laughs> Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vladdy, we just ran out of time for you. Thank you again. We deeply appreciate you investing your life with us. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.